Well, as we continue to live in this post-election grind of constant analysis, hand-wringing, protests, and all the things that are going on uh, in our country right now, it reminds me of a conversation that I had with uh, one of my neighbors. He's not like a direct neighbor, he's kind of around the corner, but I occasionally run into him. And uh, one day, not so long ago, I I ran into him, and uh, he just went on a rant about the state of things in our country and community and all that. And he's just on and he's just going on and on. And I just stood there listening to the rant. And he paused to take a breath. And I said, it's almost as if the world needs a savior. And he goes, that's good. That's what he said. And you might feel free to use that in uh, your own context. But you look around the world, and boy, it's almost as if the world needs a savior. And we look at our current uh, you know, list of potential saviors, world leaders, and all the rest, and you know, I, I don't know that I see a, a savior amongst them. All of the hand-wringing and all of the worry that our leaders may not be up for the job or bad things might happen. We need a savior is what we really need. I'd like you to imagine with me it's two months from now, okay? Two months from now is inauguration day. And uh, to take the present politics out of this, let's just say that uh, uh, a generic president-elect is going to be inaugurated as as president, generic president-elect. So... uh, that day has come, and everybody's, you know, interested, and, and the cameras are, are rolling everywhere, and the helicopters are flying overhead, and people are gathering, and it's inauguration day. The whole country's tuning in to see the spectacle of the whole thing, and uh, everyone, of course, is wanting to see the new president. Well, the new president-elect, he shows up, and uh, he actually comes to Washington, D.C. by uh, walking across the Potomac River. Washington needed a boat, but the president-elect walks across the Potomac River. He he strolls down to Walter Reed Hospital where he uh, heals all of the soldiers of the limbs and different things that have, you know, uh, been taken in war, heals all of them. Uh, He he goes on from Walter Reed, he he goes through Arlington National Cemetery, pauses at JFK's uh, tomb, raises him from the dead, goes to do his speech. And as he takes the microphone, it begins to pour rain. And he says, he says and, and everybody can hear him say it, he goes, I don't want rain, I want sun. And the rain stops and the sun comes out, right? How does the national mood change about the new president and the future of our country with him at the helm? I'm thinking it becomes more optimistic, don't you think? If he can walk across water, heal everybody at Walter Reed, raise the dead, control the weather, I think we're all suddenly looking at at this and going, you know what, this could be a good four years. I think if if this is the sort of guy that we've got running the government, you know, this is going to be a wonderful four years. Because if he can do these miracles, what sort of man must he be? And today I want to talk with you about miracles and the kingdom of God. Okay, miracles in the kingdom of God. The Gospels are choked full of accounts 
of the miracles of Jesus. In fact, the Gospel of Mark, a third of the entire Gospel of Mark is dedicated to the miracles of Jesus. If you read through Matthew, Luke, and John, huge sections of those Gospels are telling us real stories, eyewitness stories of miracles that Jesus performed. And these miracles include, you know, not the sort of thing that sometimes people hear where like, yeah, I had an ache in my back and I went to this meeting and look, now I can, you know, it doesn't hurt anymore. We're talking about like real type stuff. So things like um, the healing of all kinds of diseases and deformities, uh, the altering of what we call the laws of nature to multiply food or to walk on water, the immediate control of weather and storms, the casting out of demon, demons, and even raising the dead. These are all things that Jesus did, and the people that saw him do it are the ones that are giving us the accounts that we read today. And the account that I'd like to focus on, and there are many to choose from, here in Matthew is uh, Matthew chapter 12, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 22 uh, this one account of one particular healing because there's something that Jesus says about the healing that is very, very helpful for us. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, here's what Matthew writes. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan... He is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Now here's the key verse. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus' opponents, and he had many, Okay, and these weren't just people that didn't like him. These are people that wanted to kill him. His opponents could not deny the reality uh, that this miracle had happened. I mean, this guy was blind. He was mute. The people that are there with him are probably people that grew up around him. I mean, these are village people, townspeople. They'd known this guy probably all of his life. They knew that he couldn't uh, talk. They knew that he couldn't uh, see. And so Jesus just in a moment heals him. And the people are amazed, and they begin to whisper to one another, is this maybe the son of David? Is this maybe the Messiah? Is this maybe the one that we've been hoping would come? And the Pharisees, who want Jesus dead, they don't want him elevated, they, they can't deny the reality of the miracle. Everybody could see it was a miracle. The guy couldn't talk, and now he can talk. The guy couldn't see, and now he can see everything. They can't deny the reality of the miracle, so they try to deny... Uh, the source of Jesus' power and to call it into question. They say, you know how he does this, everybody? Yes, it's a miracle. Yes, yes, yes. But you know how he does it? He does it by the power of Satan himself. And they attribute what Jesus has just miraculously done to the work of Satan himself. And Jesus' response here, I think, is very logical and poignant. He says, why would Satan cast out Satan? 
Like if I'm doing this by the power of Satan, I'm casting out demons, why would Satan cast out Satan? It makes no sense at all. It's illogical. And the key verse is verse 28 again, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And Jesus is saying here, the only real explanation for what you have just seen is not that Satan has been at work, but rather that God is now at work and there is now presently here amongst you right now a kingdom, a rule, a reign, an authority, a power, and indeed a king. There is a new king and a new kingdom and he is here right now. And the miracle proves it. Now let's talk about miracles a second. What is a miracle, actually? And this may sound simple, but it's very complex. What makes a miracle a miracle? I read this week that there was a tribe, a remote tribe in the Amazon, that uh, recently saw their very first outsider. They had never had an outsider. They were so remote, they had never had an outsider. And as a part of this, somehow they saw their very first airplane. And uh, imagine the wonder that you would have if you had never seen an airplane. All of a sudden you see an airplane and it can fly. A big thing, big heavy thing, and it goes up in the air. If you were to ask that tribe, hey, do you think it's a, a miracle that this big thing can actually fly through the air? They would say, oh, it's a miracle. Now for us, we look at that and we say, it's not a miracle. It has to do with thrust and it has to do with lift and all these factors that make an airplane fly. We see it every day. It's not really that interesting. I can ask my phone anytime, Siri, what flights are over my head. It tells me the eight flights that are on top of me right now. Did you know that? Give it a try after the service. Uh, you know, we see it all the time. It, it doesn't seem that miraculous. It seems like it's kind of the laws of nature that allow this airplane to fly. So what makes a miracle a miracle? Is it just your perspective on it being a miracle? Uh, if so, birds have been miraculous for like millennia because they have flown, but now human beings flying, maybe we call that a miracle. I don't know. Further, we have this universe around us that spins and expands at such regular patterns, so precise, so predictable, uh, so measurable, that we just assume that these things happen this way. We, we attribute them to Mother Nature or the, the laws of nature. The Bible says that God is the one that sustains the universe. Why does the sun rise, or in our case, go down so early? Doesn't it seem like that? Like every time this time of year, I think, it's going down earlier than it ever did before. It just seems that way. When in... Truth, it's going down at precisely the same time that it went down on this date for thousands of years. Nothing has changed at all, right? But why does the sun go up and the sun go down? Why, do, why does the electron spin around the neutron and, and the few of those together make various molecules that make up matter and the periodic table and all these things that are so regular and predictable? Scientists can study it. It's the same as it's always been, it seems to us. Why is it that way? The Bible says that all of these things are spinning and doing their thing by the power of God. That God is the one that sustains it. So the atheist looks at the proton, the neutron, the electron, and the galaxies, and they say it's the laws of nature. 
The Christian looks at all of this through the Bible and says, it is the power and the providence of God that is behind all of this. If we really understood this, we would realize that God is doing amazing things around us all the time. He's just doing it with such regularity, it seems normal to us. Here's what one author said, we are wowed by the miraculous only because we have been spoiled by God's awesome regular providence. It just seems normal to us. But in reality, if I may quote the best song out of the Lego movie, everything is awesome. If we really understood what's going on all the time, everything is awesome. Everything, in a sense, is supernatural, but it seems to us to be natural because it happens all the time, every day. It's all that we've ever known. It's just normal to us. So what is a miracle? The same author goes on. God is always working directly in the world in the most fundamental uh, metaphysical sense, actively sustaining it in the sense of constant creation from moment to moment. Therefore, a miracle claim does not disturb belief about the underlying cause of nature's uniformity. God is no more or less at work in the world when turning water into wine than when grapes ferment during the normal process of making wine. What makes the former sorts of events special and deserving the term miracle is the absence of certain secondary causes, but the supernatural cause behind it all remains constant. So if you're sick and you take medicine and that medicine heals your heart or fixes your whatever, we say, thank you very much, doctor. Thank you very much, medicine. If Jesus comes along and says, you're healed, we think that that is a miracle, right? Why do we see it as a miracle? Because it's not a normal secondary cause which a doctor and a a gamma knife and a you know medicine is it is god doing what he does through secondary causes normally doing it instantaneously or to take wine as an example jesus you know the the wedding at cana the very first uh, uh, miracle that we have recorded he turns water into wine and we call that a miracle and yet in the napa valley he's turning water into wine by the thousands of gallons all the time. How does he do it? He does it through rain, and he does it through uh, grape plants, and he does it through industry and big barrels and all the things uh, Lucille Ball stomping on him. <laughs> the young people here, I'm so sorry, Verge Excel. Lucille Ball, she was like this actress years ago when the world was black and white. So, but do you see what, do you see the point? We attribute the miraculous to things that are not normal to us, when if we really understood it, we would attribute supernaturalness to everything that is around us, and everything is awesome. But when God does something extraordinary and doesn't work through the normal secondary cause, it feels to us like a miracle. And this brings us back now to Jesus in Matthew 12, 28, where he says, if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or to say it this way, that miracles are God's 
signs and indications that the kingdom of God is here right now. It has come upon you. So that the kingdom of God isn't a sign that the miraculous has come. The miraculous is a sign that the kingdom of God has come. And that miracle is a sign for us, if we understand it rightly, that God is here right now, that the kingdom of God is here right now, that the king of the kingdom of God is here right now. Now remember, the kingdom of God, what is it? It is the reign of God through Christ. It is this kingdom that is, that is here in seed form with Jesus that that is growing into the kingdom that will expand and grow into every inch of the universe when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is coming a day when the kingdom of God is going to be the only thing that people are thinking about and talking about. It's the big thing. It is the kingdom of God. Right now it seems small, and that was the point of the mustard seed from last week. So small, and yet it grows so large. Think of that mustard seed. Everything that that tree would become in terms of DNA is found in the seed. It's true of all seeds. The essence of the plant is there in in the seed. It's small, it's little, it needs water, nutrients, and time. But it becomes what it becomes because of what it has at its seed form. And what we have with Jesus in his earthly ministry is the kingdom of God as, as the mustard seed in its seed form. All that the kingdom of God is is found in Jesus and in his ministry. It's small, it's little, but what it's going to become is all there at that time. Or to say it this way, what the kingdom of God will be like in fullness was seen in Jesus. He was a microcosm of what the kingdom of God will be as a macrocosm. Now here's how the Bible describes this, and I have a little chart here that I, I think is helpful. The Bible talks about two ages, the present age and the age to come. We live in the present age, and this present age began uh, in creation. It began in the Garden of Eden. And it, because of sin, it has a termination point. And that termination point is when Jesus returns and there is final judgment. This age will come to an end. And you are here, by the way, okay? Here's where everybody is. If you're a human being, you are a part of this age right now, the present age. But the Bible talks about the age to come. And this age to come is going to be so different than the present age. And it began with the ministry of Jesus. When he came, it was the first day of the day of the age to come. And this age will go on forever and ever. But notice that where we are right now, we live in this kind of overlap time. Where the present age is still in existence. But the age to come is also here. So we live right here. And I put this point here, you are here. The question, of course, for every human being is, are you here? Okay, Everybody's here, but only by faith are you part of the age to come, which is the kingdom of God. So what were Jesus' miracles? Jesus' miracles were signs that the kingdom of God has come, that the new age has invaded this present age. In the new age, all things are restored and renewed. Okay? The present age is blindness. The present age is lameness. The present age is sickness. 
The present age is cancer. The present age is turmoil and war. The present age is a time of pain and death. The future age has none of those things in it. Or to see it this way, that sin is what makes healing and health seem miraculous. Death is what makes eternal life seem odd and supernatural. But these are the things that God created to be the normal. Right? Sin and Satan came in and took what God made as normal, and now what is normal to us is actually abnormal, and what God is making the new normal, let me see if I say this right, <laughs> let, me, let me backtrack, what seems to us to be normal is the twisted and perverted perversion of normal. What will be someday normal to us feels to us now like a miracle, supernatural, but that will be everyday stuff in the age to come. So the kingdom of God is the old normal, but it feels to us like the new normal. And Jesus' signs, miracles are signs of what that new normal will be like. And for us to get from that, that the kingdom of God is here right now. I mean, what else could Jesus have done? Like if I said to you, what, if Jesus needed to convince you that the kingdom of God is here right now. What would he need to do to convince you? You could say, well, you know what? What if he raised somebody from the dead? He did that. Okay. What if he raised somebody from the dead that had been dead for a while? He did that. Okay. What if he created matter? He did that. Like, what's he got to do to convince you that the kingdom of God is here right now? Or to look at some of the specific miracles here, and I'd like to do that very quickly, a little survey here in Matthew 14 and 15. If you have your Bible, turn to chapter 14. We see here, first of all, the famous feeding of the 5,000. More like 10 or 15,000 if you added all the women and children into this. What does Jesus do? He takes loaves of bread and fish and he multiplies it and he feeds all of these people. Five loaves, two fishes. What's the miracle in it? Here's the miracle. He has the fish and he's tearing off the fish and he's filling baskets with these couple of fish. What is Jesus doing? He is creating matter. Now we're impressed by that, aren't we? Wow. He is multiplying fish. But this is the guy that spoke and the universe came into existence. Like Jesus is probably sitting there going, oh, this is impressive to you. Look up. <laughs> I did all of that in a day. <laughs> the feeding of 5,000. In the kingdom of God, it's no big deal for God's direct power to meet our needs. He is, after all, the bread of life. Look at verse 22. This is Jesus walking on water. Okay? What, what was happening here with Jesus walking on water? He is changing the molecular structure of the water under him to support his weight. And every step is doing that. Now, I know Elsa did this <laughs> in Frozen, and I have two daughters and all that, but that's Disney, okay? This is like real, real water, real person, real supporting, and Jesus just walks across the Sea of Galilee, changing the molecular structure under him. Now, to us, that's super impressive, isn't it? 
He created molecules in the first place. That's the power of God, right? Life in the age to come is going to be very different if Jesus walking on water is any indication of what's to come. Now, if you look at verse 34 of chapter 14, you'll notice there's sort of a summary statement of a mass healing. And if you go to chapter 15, verse 29, there is another summary statement. I want to read that one to you. Listen to this moment in Jesus' ministry. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. So he chose not to walk on the water. He did it in the more traditional place, the beach. He's walking along the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and he sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. You want to talk about power on display. Here comes the masses of people. And they're sick of all different kinds that are in, the, in this group. They come walking up to him. And Jesus isn't like, you know, I'm better with eyes than I am with ears. You're going to have to go see somebody else. That's not my specialty. No, it doesn't matter what they bring to him. Bam, 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 bam. He's healing them. People that can't walk are walking away. People that can't hear are walking away hearing. People that can't see suddenly can see. And so many other things, they just kind of summarize it, you know, with these words like, everybody was healed, and they glorified the God of Israel. Friends, all, this is what the, 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 the kingdom of God is like and what it is going to be like. In the kingdom of God, there is no weakness there is no illness. There is no sickness. There are no hospitals and doctors in the age to come. None. Okay? There are, there's no Medicare. There's no waiting room. There's no needles. What's it take to get an amen out of this group here? Right? <laughs> no needles. There is wholeness and vitality and strength. That's what the kingdom of God is like. If you notice in the text, he goes on. He feeds 4,000 people. He already fed 5,000. He feeds 4,000 in the same way. And then in chapter 17, you have the unveiling of the glory of his personhood, which we call the transfiguration. What are all of these all about? We go back to 1228. If I do these by the Spirit of God and not by the Spirit of Satan, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. These miracles that Jesus did were all indications of the invasion of God's kingdom and God's power into this world that ever since the garden has only known illness and sickness and weakness and death. That God is back. He is beginning to reassert his divine rule over a rebellious creation. And these indications of that reassertion of power look to us to be miracles. But in the kingdom of God, it's everyday stuff. It's the new normal. Someday we won't call these miracles anymore. It'll be everyday stuff, everyday life. Let me illustrate it this way. I'm gonna assume most of you have popped popcorn, okay? And I mean like really pop, not the microwave, like the air, hot air, real popcorn. Okay, uh, yes, you're with me, okay. Um, and if you've done that, then you know, if you look at a popcorn seed and you say, hey, you wanna eat one? Not really, right? If you look at a popcorn seed, it's 
small, it's dry, it's hard, like, you know, it's, you're going to the dentist because you broke a filling or something if you try to eat a popcorn seed. But somebody along the way, and I don't know the story on this, maybe it was Orville Redenbacher for all I know, who discovered that there's a particular kind of corn that if you heat it up to a particular temperature, all of a sudden something wonderful and dramatic happens. It pop, it goes, right? And you discover that inside that little popcorn seed is this savory, wonderful white substance, which when combined with butter and salt makes a most wonderful snack. And I don't want anybody thinking about that at 12:16 on a Sunday. Don't be thinking about food or how hungry you are, okay? Popcorn. Now, did the heat all of a sudden make white stuff in that popcorn seed? No, it was in there already. But the heat is the unveiling of what is essentially in that corn, that seed in the first place. And when you think about what the kingdom of God is all about, what were Jesus' miracles? What were they indicating about it? Jesus was saying, it was like pop, 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 pop. You want to know what the kingdom of God is like? It's like this, and the man is healed. It's like that, and the woman is healed. It's like this, and the boy's raised from the dead. It's like this, and the, and the, and the, and the uh, storm stops. And it's, it's like this, and he's raising somebody from the dead. And it's like this, and this, and this. And you read through the gospels, it's like listening to popcorn being made. It's like pop, 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 pop. And what Jesus is doing is bam, 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 bam. This is who I am. This is what the kingdom of God is like. And all of them are wonderful and fantastic. And we look at that and we think, if this is what is normal in the kingdom of God, sign me up. I want to be a part of it and I want him as my king. Right? I want him as my king. Here's what Luke says. Luke tells us that one day Jesus goes to Nazareth, his hometown, and he goes to the synagogue, and, and, and they let him read. He's a rabbi, and he, and he pulls the Isaiah scroll out, and he scrolls through Isaiah, and he gets to the portion that says this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. He set at liberty those who are oppressed. And he gets done with that and he says, today these are fulfilled in your sight. Okay. How do the spiritually blind get the idea that Jesus can help them see? Jesus healed the blind man. How do the spiritually hungry get the idea that Jesus can help them? He fed the 5,000. Where do deaf and hurting and hopeless and sinful and marginalized and the dying look for any hope in this present age? How about the man that touched the leper and healed him? Heard the cry of the blind man, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, and had mercy on him and, and healed him. Who saw the widow whose only child had died, the boy, and he went and he raised the son from the dead. He feeds thousands of people in the barren wilderness. He's born of a virgin. He himself is raised from the dead. His whole life from the beginning to the end is all supernatural. And why is it there? It is intended to communicate to a lost present age people that all we know is illness and sickness and, and cancer and problems and turmoil and corruption and a world that seems like it's going to pot like my neighbor said. 
It's to communicate there is a new kingdom here now. And there is a new king, and it's like so different than everything that you have known. It's like this, and it's like this, and it's like this, and it's like this, and it's like this. And these are only the seeds. The fullness will be even better. Who wants to sign up for that? Okay, who wants to sign up for that? How do you sign up? Jesus says, believe in me. He doesn't say believe in my miracles. He says, believe in me. You know, there's one writer that says, that points out if you go camping and there's a sign that says campground two miles this way, you don't park your RV at the sign. You go to where the sign was pointing you. And not, none of us should park our, the RV of our faith at the miracles of Jesus, but rather to allow those signs to lead us to him, okay? Jesus doesn't say believe in my miracles. He says believe in me. And he is the miracle worker. He is the king. And the call is to personally pledge our allegiance to him as our king, to believe in him as our savior, to believe in his death and his work on the cross, dying for our sins, to believe that he is eternally the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and to say, I'm in with him. I am in with him. And he invites you into this kingdom by faith. Now, you must repent of your sins. You must turn and believe. But when we do, he welcomes us as citizens in his kingdom and promises that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. So again, who's in? Okay, who's in? Count me in. I'm in. I'm in.